Today's conversation is brought to you by Operation Christmas Child. Operation Christmas Child has been reaching millions of children each year with the good news of Jesus Christ through shoebox gifts. Even in the hardest to reach places of the world, churches are being planted and communities are transformed. You can pack a shoebox this year and reach a child with the good news of Jesus. National Collection Week is November 15th through 22nd. To learn more, visit samaritanspurse.org slash O-C-C. I think it's very easy in a church, certainly in a large one, but it doesn't have to be large, where you are being successful, not to see it as mine. This is successful because I'm smart. This is successful because of the way I preach. This is successful because of my charisma. Money's coming in, the people are coming in, and it's very easy to begin to see it as mine. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE President. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and to navigate today's complexity with biblical clarity. We have heard too many stories of verbally or physically abusive church leaders, where power has been misdirected or misused, and the hurt and the pain that comes in the fallout. In today's conversation, Diane Langberg, a psychologist and globally recognized trauma counselor, identifies the forms that power takes, how it is abused, and how to respond to the abuses of power. Here's our conversation. Diane, thanks so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here, Walter. Well, you you have an extensive list of accomplishments over 40 years of experience. What led you to trauma counseling in this particular area of the abuse of power? It was not a known topic uh, when I started out, which was in the early 1970s. And um, I ended up just because of the time in history seeing Vietnam vets And I also had many women and girls ask to see me professionally because there were hardly any women in the field, even more so in the Christian world. And so I began working with trauma when there was no such thing as trauma. It was not a diagnostic category until 1980. What I began to recognize was that my vets and the women I was seeing had the same symptoms and began to expand my mind about the fact that there are many kinds of war zones. Some of them are in Christian homes and some of them are in churches. And so I I began to be educated by the people I saw. They were my teachers. Can, Can you give us a definition of trauma so that we're kind of working together with an understanding of our conversation? 
Well, it actually means wound. Hmm. So it's to be wounded in a particular way. Um, we certainly know about physical traumas. You know, we end up in emergency rooms when those kinds of things happen. And what people began to recognize was there are all kinds of other types, uh, uh, such as psychological trauma. And, you know, if you go sit in a war zone long enough, you'll probably come back traumatized. It took us longer to realize that it could happen in homes or churches because both of those we not only believe are safe, but we desperately want them to be. Hmm. But it's, it's a way that people get wounded that's on the inside. You can't see it physically. Hmm. In your uh, latest book, Redeeming Power, you mentioned authority and power has a God-given role in human relationships and institutions. Uh, what, what does a healthy authority and power look like? Are, are there guidelines, guardrails that the Bible offers? Well, yes, I think that there are. I think the most simple answer to that, which is also the most complex, is it means to use power the way Jesus did. You know, he, he said before he left, all power is given unto me. That's pretty expansive. Therefore, go. And so our power is derivative as Christians or humans. And it was meant for us to use in a way that showed the heart of the Father and was a blessing to others. And obviously, <clears throat> since the whole, we have used power in many ways that are self-serving. And uh, we grab after power to feed ourselves in many ways, which Jesus never did. So how can, use, how can leaders use their power to bless and heal in today's context? Well, one of the easier ways to think about that, assuming you didn't grow up in an abusive home or something, but is to think about a parent with a little child and how they let the child try to walk alone, but they're always there. And they're there with rescue or they're there with comfort. They're there with pride, whatever. And so it, if you always carried your child around, so you always had physical power over that child, you would cripple the child. So power is something that we not only use to bless others, but we do that in part by letting them use their own and being watchful and present with. You think about Jesus and his disciples. I mean, they did some pretty bad things while they were disciples. Mm. But he was always there walking with, teaching, uh, using his power to bless them and guide them, but he didn't grab it away from them. Hmm. So you're describing a situation in which there's um, power that's used to bless, and part of that blessing actually changes um, with the situation. And so a baby mm -hmm. needs protection in a certain way, but at some point that protection um, becomes crippling as you describe. Yes. Um, that's an awfully difficult thing for a leader to know when the exercise of power in one context is healthy and good, but in another context becomes unhealthy. Um, and uh, you also use this language of vulnerability. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I'm trying to put together all this, you know, vulnerability, power, blessing and healing. Uh, how can vulnerability and power coexist? 
Well, they coexist all the time with us and God. We are always vulnerable to him. So it's just part of the way he made things. The word vulnerability basically means capable of being wounded. So you ask me what trauma was, it's a wound. Human beings are capable of being wounded. And so, for example, you can have a spouse who can wound you terribly. They can wound you physically, emotionally, spiritually, all kinds of ways, because you're capable of being wounded by them. You know, somebody down the street hurts somebody else, you're not vulnerable to that, unless it's somebody you loved or something like that. And so relationships hold that. And in places like marriage or parenting, for that matter, it works both ways. So I have grown sons now, and I'm still quite capable of wounding them because I'm their mother. But at this point, they can wound me too, not just physically, because they're towering over me, but emotionally and verbally as well. So it's a shifting thing. So it's really very complicated. And the only thing I know really to say about this um, is that it, it is something, at least for me, has over the years uh, driven me to knowing and loving and obedience to Jesus Christ. I had known no other way to carry power that is good for me or anybody else in my past. So this description of power and vulnerability, it seems to imply that every relationship then has the potential for abuse in it uh, because every relationship is built upon some level of vulnerability. Is this true, what I'm describing? Yes, yes. All right, well then (laughs) the capacity to misuse power is all around us. Um, so when power is used in an unhealthy way, uh, it could lead to abusive, controlling behaviors, maybe even a, an entire culture, mm-hmm. uh, organizational culture. Um, what are the patterns that you've seen in how this unhealthy use of power develops? At its foundation is deception, which if you go back to the beginning, you know, the enemy used his power to deceive Adam and Eve. That's how he caught them. And so power is abused by humans by way of deception, first of myself. So I have to steal this money because my family's hungry. And so I use my position or place somewhere, you know, or I have to say this, or I have to do this because something about me and something often in Christendom then about God. You know, if, if I don't do this, then God's church will be destroyed. And so in order to protect this system that we have, we have to cover up and lie about the fact that vulnerable children are being abused sexually in the church. So there's lots of deception involved of the self and then of others. We call things good that are evil in order to do that. Wow, that, that is so um, unnerving at one level. It is, uh, it's sobering. The, the exploration of um, this kind of misuse of power uh, in redeeming power, you mentioned, and 
you just now illustrated the body of Christ um, needs to address this. And you gave us one specific example about the uh, abuse of children. Um, I think we would all uh, agree and be mortified by that when we discover that. And even if there's a level of self-deception, we know that there's something profoundly wrong. But there, uh, but there must be other forms of the abuse of power. Some, some may be very difficult to even identify. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are different forms in which this uh, abuse of power can take place within the church? Well, physically is obviously, you know, if somebody's six five and somebody's four five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one has more power than the other. Verbally, you know, it, it, the more you have a mastery of words, the more you can use them to serve yourself. Hmm. or to move a whole institution to do something or not. I mean, if you go back and look at um, Hitler and his speeches who were written, you know, by his master of propaganda, the verbal power in those speeches is remarkable. And the church walked right behind him because of that. Um, There's emotional power. So if you're afraid of my anger, I can use the threat of that to control you in some way. Um, Or I can use fear to get you to do something you don't want to do. We we can use our emotions, our physical, our verbal. Uh, There's spiritual power, which is ways that we use theology or the scriptures or God's name to make something okay that God says is not okay. You know, so for example, a clergy might say to a very vulnerable woman, you're gonna have sex with me because if you do that, I will be a better preacher and more people will get saved and the church will grow. And I didn't make that up. That's something that's actually happened. So, you know, uh, so that, that, that kind of verbal power, but the position of knowledge and the position of authority. So when somebody's in authority, we assume they're going to lead and we assume it will be good leading, which is an assumption as humans we cannot make. Humans often lead poorly or wrongly and we need to be vigilant about that. And when we come to church, we don't wanna be vigilant. You know, it's one thing to be vigilant in your neighborhood or another thing to be vigilant at your job or whatever, but I wanna go to church and not have to think about this stuff except that I do, which is very sad. It breaks the heart of God, but it's true. Then that makes the church a place of particular concern because um, our guard is dropped and we assume the best. Yes, we do. And one of the ways we do that is when some kind of abuse is uncovered in a leader, we say he didn't mean it, which actually says nothing, but... (laughs) But that's how we excuse it. You know, this isn't really what he meant to do or things like that, or that are uh, nothing that you would find in the scriptures about how to respond to such an act. Describe a little bit more um, the dynamics between men and women um, with respect to abuse. And this could be in the church, but um, in our culture more generally, institutions and organizations. Um, what is it about the dynamics between men and women that often so goes awry in these power dynamics? Well, I think God predicted it after the fall. 
you know, that, that was one of the things that got disrupted terribly by sin was the, the relationship that they had. It was no longer that. I think also that, I mean, I think it's a many century problem. And I think theologically, you know, there have been teachings by church fathers and all, you know, theologians and whatever about women, you know, being a feeble race or, you know, the only thing women are good for, which I think was Chrysostom or somebody like that, you know, is to have babies basically. None of which is based on the character or word of God. And so I think humans in general, and this does not exclude women, have a propensity since the fall to use other humans to get something. And typically men have had more power down through the centuries in government or culture or money or whatever. And that's not so much the case now, at least not so widely different but it has been for centuries. And so I think women have been abused in many ways, not just by things like rape and domestic violence and all of that's certainly been prominent around the world, but they have also been abused because they have been silenced. We, God gave us all voice and he meant us to use that voice in ways that honor him. And we've, when we silence people, not just women, but people in another country or race or whatever, we've cut somebody out of God's chorus and he, that he meant to sing. And so it isn't, it isn't just the acts of, of abuse in terms of the genders, but also the voice and how we treat that voice. There's not only damage to the individual, you know, this metaphor of preventing them from singing the chorus, you're implying there's damage to the community as well. There's like a general loss, oh, yes. um, not just an individual loss. Yes, absolutely. And you touched on this in your comments that, uh, that this can include not just the gender relationships, um, but racial relationships. So how, what's the intersection between race and power? <laughs> it's a very wide road, I'm afraid. Mm. Um, I think it was James Baldwin who said something the equivalent of, you know, it, it's basically a curse to be born with black skin. Um, and that's certainly been true in many places and from, in, you know, many cultures. Uh, humans, I think part of the fall is that we do us and them. We do this with denominations, let alone race. You know, we have the right theology, they do not, we, you know. And so part of that is how we build ourselves up and part of how we keep other people at bay so we don't have to think about certain things and part of how we use people. So I, I think that part of what has happened, if you think back to what God says about each human being, which is that they were purposefully knit together by his hands in their mother's womb. He did that. He created that diversity. Everything he does is good. Everything he does has beauty in it. No exceptions. And we have not lived by that truth. You know, my, my, my way is better than yours. My thinking is better than yours. My color is better than yours. My culture is better than yours. And we sanctify the things that we're comfortable with and we use the others 
break God's heart. It's what we do. Diane, you have a level of um, expertise, experience that uh, undoubtedly enables you to identify certain kinds of behaviors uh, that point to the abuse of power uh, or authority. So as leaders, we have this obligation to remain vigilant, to protect the vulnerable, but we may not always have the expertise uh, to recognize. So what are some behaviors that um, leaders need to be aware of as indicators of abuse of power um, in, in their organizational settings and their church settings? Well, let's go back to the, to the word voice that I mentioned earlier. Um, some years ago, I wrote a book on counseling victims of sexual abuse. And I talked in there about humans having three characteristics that makes us human. And one of them is voice. The other is relationship. And the third was power. <laughs> and so if you're looking at, for example, a, a marriage in your congregation or somebody who's running a group for the youth or something like that, not only how do they use their voice, but how do they encourage other voices, even when they're a bit belligerent or disagree? How do they use relationship? You know, how, how do they interact with the ones they're leading? Is it always top down? Is there any sign of humility, any sign of a, an awareness that I don't know what it's like to be you, you teach me what it's like to be you, which is essentially the incarnation. I mean, he did know what it was like to be us, but he, he, he let us teach him what it was like to be human by becoming like us. So when you see leaders who don't do that, you know, it's their way and they're the one with the knowledge and they're the one with the position and they're the one who's going to say what's good and right and they don't give others a voice and there's no give and take in the relationship. And so those things lead to deception and abuse of power that damage voice, damage relationship and look nothing like our Lord. This can be overwhelming. So say you identify this, this, these dynamics that are going on, again, in the church or in your organization or in your neighborhood, uh, maybe even in your family, it can be overwhelming to know what to even do uh, in response to that. So how should Christian leaders respond to abuses of power within their spheres of influence? Well, many times, depending on how bad it is and how much they're overwhelmed, they need to seek help outside their system. I, you know, I have a counseling office with a whole bunch of therapists in it who've been trained in these things. And many years ago, pastors started coming for such help. Number one, they get chewed up by other people. They often need help to recover and to uh, look at those things in truth and respond well. But they also want help uh, with leading you know, when, where people are, are difficult or not listening or they're working with a couple and they're pretty sure she's getting beaten, but nothing shows because it's all hidden by clothes and whatever. Um, you know, how do you work with those things in a way that cares for the shoot? So I think part of it is just being able to say, I need some input and care myself. We all do. There's no exceptions to us. So uh, that, that would be one part. I think they need to study some of these things. You know, that these are not things that have been studied in seminaries. 
You don't learn about trauma in seminaries. You don't teach about uh, abuse in seminaries. You don't teach about what to do if you think it's going on and have no idea if you're right or not. All of those things, if you're going to shepherd sheep, you need to know those things. Mm. And so I think some major shifts, which I hope comes out of this earthquake we're experiencing, some ma major shifts need to be taken. You know, you can have three degrees in theology and two doctorates and everything else. But if you don't know how to take care of the sheep, you're not a shepherd. So you've described the importance of um, asking for help mm -hmm. for uh, continuing our education and recognizing what we don't know and need to um, expand our, our understanding of. Uh, what else can pastors, leaders do to stay humble, um, to not allow their authority to be used for personal gain or abuse um, or protecting the institution over the individual? I think it's very easy in a church, certainly in a large one, but it doesn't have to be large, where you are being successful, not to see it as mine. This is successful because I'm smart. This is successful because of the way I preach. This is successful because of my charisma. Money's coming in, the people are coming in, and it's very easy to begin to see it as mine. Not that anybody would necessarily say that, though there have been cases where people make that very clear, and it's pretty obvious to everybody. But and people don't want to move against that. It's quite a fort because if you say something, you're going to ruin this wonderful thing that is clearly God's. So if you have money coming in and people coming in, I think we have in Christendom over the years valued externals more than likeness to Christ. And we call those externals fruit, but it's not what the Bible calls fruit. You know, what it calls fruit are the fruit of the spirit, which is the character of Jesus Christ. There's an old book written by um, Charles Jefferson years ago, who in the 1800s, I think, or early 1900s, he had a large church up in New York called Minister as Shepherd, which is a precious book and really takes takes you back to the teaching about what it means to be a shepherd of human beings, not a builder of empires. That's not what we're called to do. Uh, I mentioned this uh, issue of protecting institutions over individuals, and I think you've um, moved the discussion in this direction. Of Can, can you um, dive into this reality a bit more from a psychological standpoint? Why is it such a temptation uh, for leaders to protect the institution? Well, I think part of it is because they see it as the fruit of their labor, whereas the fruit that God measures is their character. When you can have the character of something similar to Jesus Christ and have a tiny little church that nobody recognizes for anything, and that's a far greater value to God than having 10,000 members and a lot of money and being known all over the world. But we don't, we don't feel big in those places. 
you know, in some ways, it's not unlike being a young mother where you're home with this baby who really doesn't even know who you are yet, except that you feed them and that's what they care about. Mm. Is it doesn't matter what kind of world you had before or, what, or still have even that's outside the home. The baby doesn't care. The baby needs you to have a certain character of caregiving and feeding and watchfulness and all of those things. And they're not even going to appreciate it. That feels little. We don't like to feel little. Jesus became little. That's the way he went. Several years ago, the NAE created two codes of ethics, you know, one for pastors and clergy and the others for congregations, leadership teams. Um, number countless churches and leaders have used these tools to guide discussions around leadership ethics, um, to commit to the standards. And we're going to add those links uh, in the show notes. There are ways uh, that we hope to provide some guidance, accountability, some tracks to run on with respect to safeguarding churches and their use of power. Um, we focused a lot thus far on individuals, on individual leaders, um, but you've also talked about this idea of systems, that it's po possible for um, a system to institutionalize uh, the misuse of power. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe that a little bit? Well, the word system literally means together stand. And human beings feel more comfortable in places where there's others standing with them. Well, understandably, this is a fallen world and it's one of the ways we like to feel safe, not only safe, but perhaps loved and or important, significant. And so we want our systems, whether it's our family or our church or our global organization, or whatever, we want it to be okay because it helps us feel okay and significant and cared for. And so when there's a crack in the wall, we don't wanna look or we put scotch tape on it and say it's not really doing any harm or we ignore it or whatever because we're hungry for those. We're meant to be hungry for those things but we can't find them fully met in anything human, whether it's a person or an institution. This works for marriages too. You know, you have, you have not only terror and things when there's domestic violence, but say a woman being battered or whatever, she doesn't want to break up her home. That's a system. And of course she doesn't. She's not the one breaking it up, but she feels like if she leaves, she's broken something. It's already broken. So it's very difficult for all of us, whether it's a big system like a church or more, or whether it's our own families or a group of people that we belong to. We want it to be okay. But the other piece, of course, is that Jesus said more than once and very clearly, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. That's the reality of life on this planet. We don't want that to be true. It's okay if it's true, as long as my space doesn't have any wolves. Which I get. I don't want wolves either. But in doing that, that makes it easier for us to turn from signs that it is a wolf in sheep, sheep's clothing, whether it's in our own home or our own school or our own church or wherever it is. We don't want to look. 
we've covered some pretty difficult terrain. Uh, yes. My heart sinks every time I hear about these instances of abuse of power, uh, whether within the church or outside of the church. Um, you hear these stories a lot. This is your life's work. Where do you find encouragement? And could you offer us a last word of encouragement when we are distraught by what we hear and learn or have to confront? Well, if I'm honest, I have to say that I, I tried to quit three times. Uh, vehemently, one of those times. I, I didn't ask God. I told him I was quitting. <laughs> Obviously, I didn't do that. But each of those times, I have been at the end of my rope. I've even heard something I hadn't even imagined yet, um, which is hard to believe, I know, given the number of years, but I'm still hearing things I can't imagine. Mm -hmm. This doesn't seem to be any end to the ways we can do evil. Mm -hmm. but, but what I have come out of uh, the work with is at each of those points of desperation, Number one, God has been very gentle in, in teaching me to find ways that are very human that feed me. Now, and I'm not, I mean, I read voraciously. I'm up 5.30 every morning reading what he has to say, all of that. But I learned some years ago that I can't, when I said I quit, you know, I, I can't do ugly anymore. I can't do this and that. And what he taught me was you need to deliberately seek the antidotes. So I walk in the woods, I go stand by the water, I pick up my grandchildren. You know, there are sweet things and things of beauty in this earth that feed me and remind me that the one who created that is with me when I go into wherever I go with the abuse. So he has done something like that each of those three times. But the, the other piece, which I think has been more profound and is ongoing, is that it takes me to the cross. This is why there's a cross. And he's invited me to move in closely to that cross and what put him there. I don't like it. It's frightening, it hurts, whatever. But he's there. He's not staying there, but he's there. And it teaches me about who he is and his character, what he did and continues to do in this fallen world, and what he's called us as his children to do as well. And I, at this point, I wouldn't miss that for anything. So I guess I'll hang in till I can't do it anymore. We are so grateful that you are hanging in. Our guest on today's conversation has been Diane Langberg. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Diane. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.